Hey again, Redeemer, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation, Revelation uh, chapter 18. When you have it, say amen for me. Amen. I want y'all to read. I want y'all to read along. We're in a in a good book. It's a hard book. It's a complicated book. And so um, I'm going to ask you to have your hand on it. And uh, we'll be looking back in in a chapter in front of it and and moving around a little. But uh, this is going to be the focus of our time this morning. Revelation 18. And after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority and earth and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys her cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver and jewels and fine pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these waters who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with fine jewels and pearls, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade is on the sea stood far off. And they cried out as they saw smoke of her burning. What city was like that great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, 
and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones on the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on the earth. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, your word tells us that blessed is he, the man or woman or child who reads the words from this book, this book being the book of Revelation. In it, you use signs and symbols and numbers and images to describe uh, what is and also, Lord, what will be. And so as we turn our hearts to your word uh, in the way that John needed the Holy Spirit to give meaning Father, we need you for understanding. More than that, Lord, we need you for help to come out of this world in the way that it boasts itself up, in the way that it is so easy for us, Lord, to be sucked into it. And so I pray, Lord, that you will make us a people whose aim and chief end in life is not for our own glory for yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So David Brooks uh, has a book entitled The Second Mountain. And in the book, it, it's really a metaphor for the way that humans tend to orient our lives. And he makes the case, and I actually think that, that he's pulling from biblical imagery, but he makes the case that um, two mountains exist, so to speak. And left to ourselves, we will pursue life on this first mountain. And life up this first mountain is a life of striving. It's a life of competition. It's a life of trying to amass wealth and amass influence and amass power, right? That we're on that mountain. And then uh, we realize that that's not the mountain, that we were created to travel up another mountain, a different mountain, a better mountain. And this mountain that we travel up, the way up it, is not to amass power, but to steward it. It's not to amass wealth, but to be generous. It's not to make a name for ourselves, but rather to seek the glory and the good of others. It's not to be upwardly mobile, having no roots anywhere, but it's to be planted and rooted someplace to see the flourishing of that place. He's giving us a paradigm for living two different mountains. And as you read it, for me at least, it's forcing me to ask, well, which mountain are you trying to climb? Now, this is similar to what Jesus says. Jesus says that there are two paths. There's a path that's really broad. And he says, many are on it. And if you're on this path, the ending of that path is destruction. He says, but there's another path. There's another path that few find. 
and it's narrow and it might be hard, but the ending of that path is joy and glory. And so when we read these two paths, theology, that we're forced as believers, I think, to wrestle with where are we journeying? What's the true north for our lives? When no one is looking, when no one is around, what's driving our lives? When we talk about being a community of Christians committed to glorifying Jesus, which is a part of our mission statement, what I'm hoping that we will be are people who will travel the second mountain. People who will travel the second path. The path that few find. The path that seeks to bring glory to another whose name is Jesus. The path that ends with him and us being in the new heavens, enjoying each other forever. It's the path that I want us to be on as a people together. We talk about glory and glorifying the Lord. There are numerous passages that we could look at. Paul says you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Paul writes, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When Jesus healed people, they, they glorified him. Paul says in Galatians 1, they glorified God on the account of me. The Bible says every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ and the Lord to the glory of the Father. They're living creatures right now that we can't see. And their only job in heaven right now is to bow before the throne of the lamb and, and give him glory all day night and all day long. And when they, they just do this all the time. The psalmist says, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Paul says we've been saved to showcase the glory of God. That this idea is used almost 500 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's this image of the, the, the word is kavod. It means to be weighty, to be heavy. In a room where things are transient, it means to have a rock, something solid, something worthy of dignity and praise. And the Lord says that about himself. In the New Testament, it's this word doxa, which means praise or splendid or luminous. And so whether you're going Old Testament or New Testament, that the Bible will not let you get away from this idea that you and I were made to glory in and to bring glory to the one who is glorious. And so that means at its core to honor the honorable one with our living, to give weight to the weighty one with our living, to adorn the splendor of the most splendid one with our living. We're living in our purest sense to draw attention to him, to adorn him, to rest in him, to point to him, to honor him. And I know our mission statements say that, hey, we're going to glorify Jesus. But Jesus says in John that I and the father are one. And so if you glorify Jesus, you're bringing glory to the father. And if you glorify the Father, you're bringing glory to the Son. 
And if you glorify the Father or the Son, you're bringing glory to the Spirit. So don't get caught up in semantics there. Now, when you look at church history, bringing glory to God is a big deal. Now, think about the five solas of the Reformation, which is probably three and two were kind of added later on. But we, we, we believe in Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, and then Christ alone to the glory of God alone. So go back to the 1500s that were consumed with the glory of God. Jump over to 1618, the Synod of Dort, which is where theologians and pastors were hashing out theology. And before they did that, here is their commitment. I will only aim at the glory of God, the peace of the church, and the preservation of the purity of doctrine. Jump over to 1646 when a bunch of pastors from numerous denominations met and put together the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we confessed this morning. And the first question that these pastors and scholars set the chief end of man, why do we exist as humans? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Fast forward to 1777, Richard Allen, who's the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first black denomination in the country in 1777, he's converted. And here's what he says when he's converted. I awakened and, and was brought to see myself as a poor, wretched and undone sinner. Without the mercy of God, I was lost. And one night I thought hell would be my portion. I cried to the Lord. I cried unto him who delighted to hear the prayers of a sinner. And all of a sudden, my dungeon shook, my chains fell off, and glory to God, I cried. 1777, a slave is converted, and the first thing out of his mouth is glory to God. Fast forward to 1803, Dorothy Ripley, whose father was friends with John Wesley, she was an evangelist and came over to the States. And guess whose church she found herself worshiping in? Richard Allen, who founded the AME Church. Here's what she writes about being in that church. How do I feel myself united with spiritual worshipers who desire to ascribe all glory to the Father through the Son's reigning power in them by the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit, they gather all their powers to center them in the God of all grace and the God of all glory. Why give you 300 years of church history from the 1500s to the 1800s? It's to show you that in the history of the church, the church has always been consumed with the glory of God. It's a big deal. It's a big deal in the Bible. It's a big deal in our confessions. It's a big deal in church history. And it should be a big deal to us. That we live lives that bring glory to the Lord Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with Revelation? Right? Here's what it has to do with it. 
the first thing John's going to give us is a picture of the end of those who will not live for God's glory. It gives you a picture. Pictures are worth a thousand words. What our minds have a hard time orienting round, around in, in words, Revelation says, let me give you pictures. And maybe you learn better with movies. Maybe you learn better with, with images. And what Revelation does is it gives us imagery. It gives us pictures. Now, when you read our passage, you'll notice that Revelation ends, right? Not far from there. You turn over, it got 22 chapters. So we're at the end of the end almost. And what you'll notice in the next, well, in Revelation 20, uh, that Satan is defeated, right? So, that, so we're near his end. But then what you start to see in this passage, th th there is no direct allusion to Satan. The center of this passage is a city called Babylon, right? Babylon is described numerous times in our passage. She's called Babylon the Great. She's called a queen. She's called a sexually immoral female com committing adultery with kings. In verse 9, she's called one who lives in luxury. She's also called a great and mighty city. We're told that she's dressed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and gold and jewels. She's called again a great city in verse 16. The million dollar question is who or what is Babylon? Right? Now, I think you have to turn to Revelation 17 to see who this is. So turn back one chapter and notice how it begins. Revelation 17, 1. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And so waters were alluded to in 18. Uh, sexual morality was alluded to in 18. You see the same thing in 17. Notice the attire, right, that we're told that, that she's adorned in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. Same attire in Revelation 18. So we're starting to see that, that 18 and 17, they're talking about the same person. And so the question then is, who is she? Did you notice what it says in verse 3 of 17? He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. She's a, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The beast is scarlet, and she's dressed in scarlet. So her attire has been stained by the beast that she is on. Well, what beast? What, what beast are we talking about? You turn over to Revelation 21, and it's Satan. And so what you're starting to see right here in the imagery of Revelation is that this is Satan's bride. Now, he doesn't have a real bride. Again, this is imagery. So what is Babylon? Who is Babylon? It could have meant Rome when John was writing it. But as one scholar says that, this is probably not a specific place, but a picture of the world system that we all live within, that is in opposition to the Lamb, that is in opposition to the glory of the Lamb, 
that lives in rebellion against the king. And so all of a sudden it makes sense that when you start to see how she is described, she's described as sexual, sexually immoral. This is an attempt to talk about the world we live in where pornography and adultery and hookup culture and strip clubs and sex trafficking where the marriage bed is not holy where men and women will no longer honor the Lord with their body that marriage and sex in marriage is is not reserved for committed consensual monogamous heterosexual married couples the mo of the world around us is do what you want with your body that she's known for rebelling against the lord there but there's rebellion also with respect to luxury that over and over again she's we're, she's being described as having pearls and linen and fine cloth and silk and scarlet and wood and ivory and articles of costly wood and bronze and iron that, that, that she's talked about with these delicacies and these splendors. And what John is showing us is the world out there will not be content with daily bread. They have to have more. You're nothing if you don't have a full 401k. You're nothing if you don't have a lake house. You're nothing if you're not making six figures. Uh, you have to have more. Bigger barns, bigger houses, bigger cars, more savings, more stuff. And this is true from the boardroom that will not stop at trying to squeeze profits out of everything. And this is true on the block where dudes will peddle crack just to turn a dollar. That the system of the world is that we value money and prosperity above all things, above all cost. That that's the imagery here. And look at what it does with truth. When you try to confront the world with truth, with the gospel, look at what happens in verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints. They don't want to hear truth. They don't want to hear daily bread. They don't want to be, be content with what you brought into the world. They, they don't want to hear that. And this system has the appearance of power and strength and invincibility. But, but, but four times this refrain of in a single day, verse 8. In a single hour, verse 10. In a single hour, verse 17. In a single hour, verse 19, she will be laid to waste. In other words, what John sees is this appearance of strength, appearance of power, appearance of might. But it's like a kid who builds a sandcastle too close to the water. And they spend all morning building the castle, building the castle. And when that tide comes in, it wipes it away. And there is there nothing anymore. That that's the imagery that John is using here. That this world looks big and invincible and powerful and eternal. But in a single day, God will judge it. Now, here's the question. Why? Because like 
God is talking about a millstone. He's saying, you ain't going to hear no music no more, no flute players. Ain't nobody going to get married. You're not going to see milling. Nobody's going to be working. There's no, there's not even going to be light there because no light will shine there. You're like, God, come on, man. Like, why? Like, like, why would you pour out your judgment and wrath? Like, like, what is the root reason? And on the one hand, you can look at verse five, right? It says, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquity. So it's, it's as if God is keeping score, that God is not losing count with this world and the people of the world and what they're doing. And then one day, right, he has enough. And one day he unleashes it and gives it what it deserves. The question is why it looks like, okay, it's their sins. But go down to verse seven. And eight. This is the anchor verse, in my opinion, of, verse, of chapter 18. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment. She has said in her heart, I am a queen, I am no widow, I will not grieve, no mourning will I ever see. And God says right there in verse eight, for this reason, this reason, plagues are coming. So what's the reason beneath the reason? We could say, okay, it's their sins, it's their immorality, it's this longing for prosperity. Okay, but what God says, the ultimate reason, they don't want to give me glory. This world does not want to glorify its maker. That's the reason. She has spurned the idea that I create the world. I sustain the world. If I withhold my food, no one eats. If I withhold my rain, everyone dies. That I hold together molecules in the body of an unbeliever right now. That I keep them alive. And because they refuse to give me honor and glory, I will take my life from them. If this is you and your life's ambition is to make your name great and it never crosses your mind that you were made to glorify someone else and to glory in the beauty and the excellencies of someone else. If your ambition is in life is to amass and amass and turn a profit and turn a profit and gain influence and gain influence. If you have a Burger King mentality that you live to do life your way. Revelation says this is how it ends. In destruction. Which moves us to our second point which is a present and surprising warning for believers. I don't know about y'all, but when I read this, I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is about Babylon, right? See, that's what it says right at the beginning, the fall of Babylon, and I'm not, I'm not in Babylon, right? I'm a believer. And my temptation is to read this and think that I can just kind of ignore this part of scripture. This doesn't have to do with me because this is not my future. But I want to submit to you that the other important verse in this passage 
makes a compelling case that we should not read Revelation 18 exclusively as a, a picture of judgment for the perishing, but a gracious warning for God's people. Let me show you what I mean. So when Revelation 18 begins, John sees another angel and this angel, the earth was made bright with glory. So this angel has obviously come from the throne room of God where God is dwelling in inapproachable light. And it's like Moses, when God, when, when Moses had encountered the, the living God, that his face shone. And so this angel has come from the presence of God. And so when he comes on the earth, he is radiating God's glory. And so what he sees, right, and what he hears in, 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 in Revelation 18, 1 through 3 is, is from what the angel says. But then look, something changes in verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven. This isn't the angel that was dispatched. This is another voice thundering from heaven. And what does the voice thundering from heaven say? Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. Whoa. Y'all hear that? That's like the voice from heaven saying, my people, you come out from her, lest you take share in her plagues and her plagues are coming because she does not live for my glory, but she seeks to glorify herself. And so when God says, my people come out of her, lest you take share of her plagues, what he's really saying, believer, it, it is easier than you think to be sucked into this world where we get off course, where we get off track, where we start to image the world and seek to make a name for ourselves. Do you do not dare dismiss this warning? It's not just a warning for the world. This is a warning for us. Come out of her, my people. It's easy to get off track. It's easy to let family members and coworkers and neighbors and friends and the rich and famous begin to redefine our lives. That we begin to long for self glory and the way that the world around us is. John Piper in his book, Battling Unbelief, he's writing about anxiety. He says, anxiety is a condition of the heart that can give rise to many other sinful states of living. The anxiety about finances can make us covet and greedy and we can hoard and steal. Anxiety about succeeding at a task can make you irritable and unloving. Anxiety about how someone will respond to you can make you cover up the truth and lie. So if anxiety can be conquered, a mortal blow would be struck to so many other sins. And so what he's saying is that anxiety is like a tree that has deep roots. And, and the, the, the fruit of anxiety, it can be a whole bunch of other stuff. And so if you can cut the root of anxiety, so much of these other things that we struggle with, that they will die. The case that I think we can make about self-glory is self-glory is a root. It's a tree. 
And when self-glory goes down into our hearts, the fruit of that in our lives can be the Burger King mentality. I want things my way on my terms right now. That when we're given over to self-glory, we can't rejoice when someone else gets the promotion that we should have gotten. That when we're given over to self-glory, our names have to be on every single thing. When we're given over to self-glory, we always have to be right. We cannot be wrong. We always have to have the last word. When we're given over to self-glory, if our lots in life aren't what we want, then we raise our fists at God. And so if we could kill self-glory... A mortal blow will be struck to all these other things that come off the tree of it. And so here's the question. How you doing, Redeemer? Is the glory of God your true north? Do you wake up and say that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord? The angels are around the throne giving glory to the Lord. And my true north is to bring glory to the Lord in this next meeting, in this next visit, on this next assignment. How much is the glory of God at the center of your child rearing and your dealing with childlessness? How often is the glory of God at the center of your marriage and your unmet desire to be married? How often in your singleness do you ask, how might I glorify God here as Christ did as a single man, as Paul did as a single man? How often is the glory of God on your mind? When you're tempted, moments before you give in, does it cross your mind that you can glorify God with resisting? How often does the glory of God cross your mind when it's time to discipline and your anger is about to go into unbridled and unloving anger? How often do you wake up and think about the glory of God as you drive to your respective vocations or you walk into yet another room and you're taking care of aging parents? Does it cross your mind that you can glorify God when that cancer report comes back? And it's not what you thought it would be. The question that should be at the center of our hearts in whatever situation, in whatever season, in whatever ever circumstance, is how can I magnify, exalt, uplift, rest in, and esteem the name and excellency of Jesus? And I don't know about you, y'all, and I'm your pastor. I don't always think like this. I forget this. I forget that there is enjoyment in honoring him. I forget that I was made and wired 
to make him famous and beautiful. I forget that. And I'm just like the world. And my guess is that you probably don't wake up and think about this all the time. That it's easy to let the world set the agenda for our existence. And what God says to us, even if it don't look as bad as the world. Come out from her, my people. You're different. And so how do we do that? That's the question. How do we come out? That's the command. How do, how do, how do we do this? How do we not be deceived and lulled to sleep by the world where our ambition becomes self-glory? How do we come out of it? Which is my last point. It starts with seeing this picture. This is how it ends for those who don't. Destruction. And all the striving and everything we thought would satisfy eternally is taken in a moment and forgotten and judged forever. But it doesn't stay there, right? It, rem it moves to remembering our identity. I think the most beautiful words in this passage they're tender. But I can hear God saying, come out of her, my people. God is making a distinction. He's saying that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Right? Because Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with those who are sexually immoral, but if you really had to do that, you would have to leave the earth. And since you can't leave the earth, you have to do it right there where you live in Corinth, right? So, so Jesus says, I'm not taking you out of the world, but you will stay in the world and not be of the world. And so this coming out that, that, that God is saying here, it's not a physically leaving the earth. It's a spiritual reprioritization. It's a spiritual remembrance that we're here, but we're not of this place. We live on the earth, but we don't belong to the earth and we don't belong to the beast. We belong to our groom. Now, there's a setup that's happening in this section. And here's what you're going to see. Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon, the city, the great city is married to the beast. And what you see in Revelation 20 is the beast who is Satan is destroyed forever. And so what happens to his bride? She too is destroyed forever because she is united to him spiritually. But Revelation is telling us a picture of another bride and another groom. And you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the bride is Jesus. I mean, the groom is Jesus. And the bride is the church. 
And what Revelation is going to tell you is if you are united to your groom, who is Jesus, then you who are united to him will not suffer the destiny of those united to Satan. But you have a different outcome. And the last I checked, Jesus is not returning as a humble servant. He's returning as a conquering king. And we united to him will reign with him and enjoy him and will be in his presence and will glorify him forever. So our future is not the future of this world. It's not the future of the beast. It's the future of our king. And that's why God can say, you come out of there, my people. Why does he call us my people? Because his son, who was with him in glory, for all time and all space, who upholds all things right now by the word of his power, that over in the gospel of John, that that Jesus, that Jesus who had been with God forever, he came to the earth on a rescue mission. You want to know the book that has glory, glorified, or glorified more times than any other book in the Bible? It's the gospel of John. Have you ever thought about why John begins with this idea in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That when Jesus did signs, his signs showcase his glory. That he told his disciples, did I not tell you that you will see the glory of God? That he prayed, Father, I glorify your name. And a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it. In John 17, Jesus prayed, I have glorified you. I have accomplished all the work that you have sent me to do. I will glorify you by laying down my life. That's glorified living. That is what you and I were made for. We were made to find our satisfaction and significance in him. And we were made as creatures of a creator God to walk in step with our creator. And what sin has done to you and I, it's made us exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we now want to be in the, the seat of the creator and we want glory and we want fame and we want power and we want prominence and what Jesus has done is the one who is prominent and famous he has come to the earth and he has lived as a humble servant who didn't have money he didn't have a place to lay his head he did he went through life without and he lived a beautiful perfect God honoring, glorifying life. And in the end, he was rewarded with death on a cross. And even his death on a cross brought glory to God. Why? Why would he come and do that? To rescue glory thieves like you and me. To rescue glory covetous like you and me to rescue human glory seekers like you and me and here's the result of Jesus's humiliation in John that what you see in Revelation 
is the glorifying of Christ. God has now lifted him up and he is conquering and ruling and reigning and being praised and enjoyed and adored forever and ever and ever. And here is the good news. If you're in Christ, God looks at you and he's satisfied and he smiles and he adores you and he loves you and you don't have to strive. You don't have to be famous. You're famous to him. You don't have to worry about your daily bread. He's going to feed you. You don't have to get your parenting perfect. He's going to be at work in your midst. That the result of Jesus and his work is that everything we strive after, we have. Your creator looks at you now through Christ. And he is well pleased with you. And when this gets in our hearts, do you know what it creates in us? A longing to want to glorify his name. A longing to make him famous. A longing to sit under his rule. A longing to delight in his precepts. A longing for his presence. Thomas Watson, he says that there are four aspects to glorifying Jesus. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. We appreciate him. We adore him. We love on him. And we desire to obey him. That's what we mean when we want to be a community of Christians committed to glorifying Jesus. That we'll worship, love, obey, and remember always, all times, all places, God's goodness to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will bless your word to your people. I pray that we will see the movement in this passage. We see a picture of the world and where it's going. We hear the warning to examine our own hearts and to turn from the sin of self-glory. But we also see the hope of the future. We are your people and our destiny is not in the grave. It's not under your wrath. It is in your presence forevermore. Help us, Lord, to be moved by this so much so that what is true for us in the future breaks into the here and now that we see ourselves not of this world, but yours. And we live lives in response to your graciousness to us in Jesus. We love you. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.